the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have award-winning science writer Steve Silberman on the show. He's author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Welcome, Steve. I'm so excited to have you here today. Hi, Sarah. I'm very honored to to be here. Thank you. Uh, and it's a it's a it's a I'm glad to be talking about a broader subject than what I usually get asked about, which is autism because of my book. And so uh, this is a very exciting opportunity for me. Well, I am I'm excited to talk to you about well, we we decided to do the episode this month because of Autism Awareness Month. Yeah. And we've had a lot of conversations about neurodiversity and cannabis because of what goes on in our endocannabinoid system. And when I heard about you in your book, I thought, what an excellent person to have a conversation with about this and then to find out that you also really like cannabis. I do. <laughs> yes, I am a lifelong, enthusiastic cannabis user. Um, I do understand that, you know, too much is too much and too much should be avoided. Um, you know, I stopped getting high during the day decades ago, probably. Um, but uh, I not only still use cannabis, I use cannabis uh, now because of things like the apothecarium and other dispensaries that are excellent and delivery services. We're in a goal, you know, while we're in hell in practically every other way, <laughs> we have to be in a golden age of cannabis. Um, and yeah, I, uh, you know, started smoking uh, pot in, I don't know, I think I was 12. Um, my uh, best friend had an older brother who had a big shoebox of rainbow Colombian or something like that in his <laughs> closet, you know, and um What's hilarious or sad or something is that his my friend's mother caught us smoking once and told me that she was very disappointed that I had brought that stuff here when, of course, it belonged to her son and her son and her other son as well. And uh, but for me, um, I use cannabis uh, for, you know, some very. <laughs> Uh, direct sensory rewards when listening to music or, uh, you know, eating food, which I do too much of anyway. Um, and, <laughs> right. and, you know, it does, it can be really good for sex as well. Um, and it's also good for, uh, because so much of my day is spent trying to analyze information and sort of crystallize thoughts and articulate things it's a good way to sort of give myself a different perspective without becoming a different person. So, you know, sometimes I do my first drafts uh, sober and then, you know, I'll smoke some cannabis to do edits and it works in both directions um, because you can, it, it really sharpens my BS detector. <laughs> so, I, so I can tell when I'm kind of either, you know, just not writing well or, fooling myself in some way. And it, it makes that BS detector more acute, I would say. And so cannabis has been a part of my life, my fun, my work uh, for, you know, since I was a kid, basically. That's awesome. I, I 
tried it the first time when I was 13. And mm -hmm. when I do my writing, sometimes I get the block, I get the scaries. Yeah. So I find that I like it for the creative aspect going back and editing. Yeah. But I like using some of the non-euphoric cannabinoids to get my mind going to begin with. Like CBG helps quiet that hamster wheel in my mind that's like oh interesting yeah what what are you doing is this the correct subject are you going in the direction that you want to go oh that's interesting i don't know what points to make <laughs> right 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 and then all of a sudden yeah. it's like shuts it down and it's like just get into flow it, it helps me right. get into flow state a lot of times but sometimes yeah. too much uh thc can be distracting unless like you i'm mm -hmm. getting into like draft the drafts and kind of picking things apart and adding things and just really looking at what I like to put stuff away and go back to it. Yes. That's the whole secret. You have, you have to, if you're going to, you know, alter your consciousness as part of your creative process, you have to flip back and forth and, and use both perspectives in an informed way to get the most value out of those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And I was I was really excited when you agreed to be on the podcast and we had we had a really good conversation about it before you agreed, which I really appreciated because mm -hmm. you were so thoughtful in your approach. We're like, you know, Sarah, I it, it you know, neurodiversity and cannabis and people with autism. I've had people with autism that in my community say, you know, it doesn't work for them. And so I don't know if I can speak to it, but that's. That's what I want to talk about today is how we are all walking chemistry experiments and we're so different. So for some people, they're like, yeah, this is what works for me. This is my jam. This is what helps me with some of the more, you know, common things that I come up against and other people that are like, yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it. Right. But, well, part, part of it is I'm a science writer. And and as you know, probably better than I do, there's a tremendous amount of hype in the in the like the cbd world you know right. and and the and the actual product is very unreliable depending on where you get it you know and so t so thc and cbd levels in various products that you know are out there and popular it's not always what you think you're buying you know and uh so when i talked to you one of the first things that i did was to go to my followers on twitter who are thankfully a lot uh, and asked my autistic followers uh, if they use cannabis. And I got um, lots and lots of responses, but they were definitely not all positive or all negative. It was very mixed. Some people said, oh, yes, you know, I use cannabis because it helps me with anxiety or I use cannabis because it helps me sleep. And then other people said, well, you know, I use indica for this or, sal uh, you know, or sativa for that. And uh, there was just as much diversity of responses as there would be, I would think, in a group of neurotypical people. So for our our listeners who this may be <clears throat> new to, because, you know, we're having more conversations about neurodiversity, mm -hmm. it hasn't become quite as mainstream as perhaps it should Mm -hmm. Would you be able to give some definitions for people to help them follow along with our conversation around this? Sure. Uh, the word neurodiversity was coined by a woman named Judy Singer uh, in the, uh, I believe it was the 90s. Um, and she had an autistic daughter, uh, but her daughter did not fit the very narrow 
um, monolithic definition of autism. For instance, um, you know, people with autism are supposedly not even interested in uh, having a relationship with their own parents. That was ridiculous. Her daughter was a very loving little girl, very funny little girl, very sweet little girl. So, uh, so her daughter did not fit this sort of, um, you know, shoebox that she was supposed to be shoved into by her diagnosis. And so Judy started to think about what's called the social model of disability, in part encouraged by um, one of her mentors who had survived polio and lived in a wheelchair. And he pointed out to her that if you live in a wheelchair in a town that has no uh, ramps or curb cuts or publicly accessible bathrooms or publicly accessible classrooms, you are really disabled. But if you are if you live in a town that has those things, you can get around just fine in your wheelchair, like Berkeley, for instance, um, which was pioneer in the uh, independent living movement for disabled people. So she started to think of the diversity of human minds or um, styles of cognition as a gift in the same way that biodiversity in a rainforest is a gift. If you have all of one kind of tree in a forest, then if that kind of tree is, is um, vulnerable to a certain insect or disease or something, if that insect or disease comes around, that forest dies. But if you have lots of different kinds of organisms thriving in cooperation with each other in a rainforest, then that rainforest can adapt to unpredictably changing conditions. So she, instead of terming her daughter, or and she also, Judy also believes she had autistic traits herself, instead of laying a label on her daughter that was disorder or dysfunction or impairments or uh, all the ways that autism is usually systematized and then laid on people, um, she started to think of what if the different kinds of human minds are a virtue to society in the same way that biodiversity is a virtue to a rainforest? And so she and uh, uh, another journalist whose name I'm, uh, I'm unfortunately forgetting coined the word neurodiversity. Um, and uh, that she was hoping that it would spread through the community of people with conditions like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, uh, and Tourette's, uh, other conditions. She was hoping that it would spread through those communities as a term of pride and empowerment in the same way that slogans like gay is good or sisterhood is powerful or black is beautiful spread through those communities in the 60s and empowered them to make social change. So she was hoping that the word neurodiversity would become a sort of global rallying cry for people with these different forms of cognition to be uh, proud of themselves, to claim their virtues and aptitudes and gifts, as well as uh, face the challenges that they face in a society not built for them. And so that's where the word neurodiversity comes from and basically what it means. Thank you for that. I, I hadn't heard that term until probably around 2011 when I went back to college. Mm -hmm. I went to CIS, hippie college. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, part of my study was critical psychology. So we had a mm. lot of conversations about neurodiversity and how, 
you know, how things are pathologized and just like how our our neurodiversity, if we look back in history, different cultures looked at them as gifts, the different yep. the differences that we have in our brains and how, you know, and we even talked about like, you know, two spirited folks and yep. shamanism and a lot of things that go around that. And just it's I just I find it really interesting how when we talk about something like autism, if somebody hasn't been touched by it, they see it as this blanket definition and they don't realize that there is a spectrum because uh, Jeff and I, our youngest niece is on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. She's, she's funny. She's yeah. funny. She's passionate. Yeah. You have to stop her from climbing trees because she, she's, a, she, she, when she was born, um, there were some difficulties with her birth with her birth. So she actually had mm -hmm. half of a heart. So she's mm -hmm. on blood thinners and doing all mm -hmm. She's also the kid that wants to like get into everything and do oh, all yeah. the fun stuff, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, um, one, you know, one thing that we had been talking about, cause she was having a lot of issues with anxiety mm -hmm. and problems at school because of, mm -hmm. you know, things that her mother would have to navigate. Mm -hmm. And we had actually worked with CBD with her mom and her doctor. Mm -hmm. And because of her brain chemistry, where CBD by and large is supposed to be more about homeostasis, than mm -hmm. particularly uplifting or mm -hmm. CBD. And like mm -hmm. you, I'm really tired of people bringing it up. Like we have a joke in the industry that CBD is like in my big fat Greek wedding when the dad puts Windex on everything. That's what CBD <laughs> becomes, right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in her case, it actually amped her up to the point where she felt uncomfortable. Oh, that's interesting. CBD did? CBD did. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I've worked with thousands of people. And in the time that I've worked with people, I've actually had four different people who had highly reactive experiences with high mm -hmm. ratios of CBD to THC, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. goes to show our brains, the way they work and just, you know, our nervous system is fascinating. Like I, yeah. I always lean in when there's an anomaly, you know, other people are like, oh, my God. Oh, right. And I'm like, I'm like, what, right. no, what happened? Tell me. Right. I need right. to learn. Like, yeah. You know. Well, the one, you know, the one thing that I'm comfortable about talking about in terms of a, you know, a clearly promising uh, cannabis treatment is for epilepsy. Yeah. Because that has been peer reviewed. And epilepsy, uh, some people don't know, but epilepsy is a huge problem uh, within autism. Um, many people with, uh, particularly uh, autistic people with intellectual disability also have epilepsy. And one of the kinds of uh, shortcomings of our society that I talk about in my talks and, and allude to in neurotribes is that we don't know how the standard epilepsy medications work in autistic brains. There are very few, very, very few, if any, I've never heard of one, uh, study of um, testing what the standard prescriptions are uh, in autistic brains and that you'd think that's so important, but there have been enough um, peer reviewed studies with strong st statistical significance and, you know, they reinforce each other, their reproducible results that uh, epilepsy, which is a leading cause of death for autistic adults with intellectual disability um, uh, that it can be a promising uh, treatment. Yep. Um, so that's something I feel very comfortable about recommending. But uh, 
other than and you know there's there's some good stuff on anxiety i just happened to look at a um a huge meta-analysis uh, that came out in 2019 called Current State of Evidence of Cannabis Utilizations for Treatment of Autism Spectrum Disorders. Uh, well, you know, for one thing, treatment of autism spectrum disorders, <laughs> it's a complicated issue, but in any case, uh, they did find uh, significant support for epilepsy, some significant support for anxiety, but other than that, it was all over the map. Some people saying that it made them more anxious, other people saying it made them less anxious. So I think we're just beginning to do the research that will tell us what cannabis can really do uh, and what different forms of cannabis and the different um, active principles and, and uh, terpenes and what we're really understanding what that whole system does in our brains. We're just beginning. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, you know, when I started working in cannabis, we were just talking about THC. I got into cannabis because in my late 30s, I had stage three colon cancer. Oh, wow. And I used different like nausea and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually what inspired me later on to become an educator because people were afraid of giving information. And what right. we're really talking about is... I always tell people when they come to one of my classes, which, by the way, sleep, anxiety and depression is the highest attended class in the past two years. Oh, I believe it. You yeah, know? absolutely. But I always preface my class with not only the fact that I'm not a medical practitioner, but also that when we're talking about what cannabis does for people, it's a report back on how the majority of human beings have been responding Right. And we're all really different. There will always be anomalies and we're always discovering new things about cannabis. Because when I started working in it, we weren't having the conversations about CBD. Right. And now there are all these other, I'll call them minor cannabinoids, but, you know, just because we don't talk about them as much that, you know, may actually have more value than we they even thought of. And when people come to me and they say, hey, I've heard that, you know, cannabis can cure your cancer i always say no 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 yes no, no. <laughs> and that's a you know that's one of the main subjects uh, of my book neurotribes was that uh, the prevalence of quack cures uh, right. really dominated the the world of uh, autism parents um for a couple of decades and then of course that led up to the completely false, debunked, trash, get rid of it, claim that vaccines cause autism. Vaccines do not cause autism. Um, the reason why I wrote my book was because, um, you know, basically almost every parent I talked to was anxious about vaccines. Um, and if an article about autism came out in an online, uh, you know, even a major newspaper like the Times, um, even if it was about autism and employment or autism and romance or, you know, anything else, the comment sections would be dominated by, by cl claims about vaccines. And if you said that vaccines do not cause autism, you would be accused of being a shill for big pharma. I used to be uh, one of the lead science writers for Wired magazine. I've written stories that were very critical of Big Pharma. I understand that Big Pharma can do absolutely terrible things, including killing people and trying to cover it up. I absolutely understand that. But 
I needed to know why we were still talking about vaccines when study after study did not support the notion that there was some connection between autism and vaccines. And I sort of went down, you know, this very deep rabbit hole for about five years um, and, you know, saw that there were lots of very earnest parents who wanted to help their kids. And, you know, I understand that. But um, there were millions of dollars being made on stuff like camel milk and hyperbaric chambers. And, you know, and you'd always hear, well, big pharma is suppressing this. You know, no, actually, it doesn't work. And you're spending thousands of dollars that would be better spent on an iPad so your kid can talk. Yeah. You know, like a, a very good treatment for autism, just like a treatment for any <laughs> a treatment for being neurotypical, is to have the ability to communicate. Right. Um, and there's a tremendous uh, film that just came out last year that I would very highly recommend called This Is Not About Me. You can see it online if you search on that phrase. Um, it's about a, a young woman named Jordan Zimmerman who was diagnosed when she was very young with what you know some parents like to call severe autism. She was self-injurious. She could not talk. Um, she was very angry. Uh, it was predicted that she would have basically no life, that she would spend her life in institutions, um, that it was ridiculous for her go to go to classes because she was just a disruptive influence in mainstream classes. Well, her parents and uh, some, you know, very progressive teachers gave her what she needed to communicate her thoughts for the first time, which was an iPad and, and software that enabled her to communicate. That woman just got a master's degree in special education. Wow. And, I'd be mad, too, if I couldn't communicate. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. And, you know, I would say a story that I heard over and over again while writing Neurotribes and talking to parents was how the most trusted medical authorities uh, or authority, educational authorities in the parent's life would say, I'm sorry, your child is hopeless. You know, in fact, one of the... Uh, one of the parents that I wrote about in Neurotribes, when his daughter was born, the pediatrician said, there is very little difference between your daughter and an animal. That girl also just got a master's degree. Wow. Um, so, the, you know, where that came from, where that all came from, was for most of the 20th century, parents were not just erroneously, but horribly blamed for their children's autism because of a bunch of terrible fake theories, psychological theories and hoaxers like a guy named Bruno Bettelheim who wrote a bestseller called The Empty Fortress in which he accused mothers of autistic kids of being like concentration camp commandants, which everybody trusted him because he'd been in a concentration camp. Wow. Um, but it was all lies. And so um, what would happen is, you know, if, when I'm I'm a so-called trailing edge baby boomer, so I was born, you know, in, late, late, late in that big baby boom um, in 1957, and um, you know, people say, "Oh, why did I never hear about autism? I keep hearing about autism now. There must be an epidemic. Why did I never hear about?" It? The reason why you never heard about it 
for most of the 20th century was that because parents were blamed for it, parents didn't talk about it. Yeah. So like there was a, a best-selling author named Jacqueline Suzanne who wrote a book called Valley of the Dolls, which was turned into a movie. She was churning out those terrible books because her son had autism and was institutionalized. And yet she and her husband told everybody that they knew that uh, their son had asthma and was going to Arizona for her asthma. So you never heard about autism because people were told to cover it up. Parents were told to, I heard this over and over again, to quote unquote, remove the child's photographs from the family albums and move on, right? So that's why you never heard about autistic people in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because they were not just invisible, but erased. Um, and doesn't that just exacerbate the problem that these people go through? Oh, absolutely. They had no opportunities for learning in a mental asylum. Right. They were subjected to um, horrifically brutal treatments because there were no institutional review boards vetting these experiments. I'll give you an example. There was a, the head psychiatrist at Bellevue, you know, which is like the big famous mental hospital in New York City. Um, she gave a group of autistic kids LSD every day for three months until she decided that it was making them more anxious. Well, you know, I've taken LSD. If I took LSD every day for three months, I'd be anxious myself. Let's yeah. say, you know, so these, these kids had no chance to learn and develop. Not only that, there were all these theories that they were incapable of learning, um, which was the opposite of the truth. They just learned in autistic ways. And so the so-called bad outcomes for autistic people was based on people who were shut away in institutions and, you know, subjected to these brutal treatments, including lobotomy and everything else. Uh, they had no chance to develop as people. And so that was where the notion that, oh, your child is no different than an animal came from, because people who spent their lives in institutions were treated like animals their whole lives. Do you think that the more conversations that we have about autistic folks and the ways of learning have opened up for everybody, understanding that everybody learns differently and, and communication? Yes, absolutely. And... Um, I think that that's, you know, what's funny is that I, I haven't uh, thought about this enough to articulate it really well, but, you know, the experiences that we've had with cannabis and psychedelics also suggest that there are different ways of learning in their own ways. And so I think we're just understanding that human minds are, are very different from one another and that society works best when we have different kinds of minds working together, like Temple Grandin, who is just about the most well-known autistic person in the world. Um, she writes many books. There was a, bio, a, a biopic made about her uh, with Claire Danes playing her. Um, she says that her work as a leader in industrial design, she designs uh, facilities for livestock industry to make them in, a, uh, in some ways more compassionate for uh, the animals, um, that she would never have been able to think of 
the solutions that she thinks up for a living if she wasn't autistic. So it's not that, oh, Temple Grandin became an industrial designer despite her autism, which is the way the, the, the way these things are always framed. Right. She says she became an industrial designer because of her autism. That's a very different way of framing these conditions. Right. The gift of neurodiversity. Yep, exactly. Well, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't use a weighted blanket when I feel stressed out. Oh, yeah, I know. No, that's a that's a thing. I, I, I haven't tried that myself yet, but a lot of my autistic friends have weighted blankets. And in fact, some of them have even some of them are even a little pissed off that weighted blankets have become so popular among non-autistic people because they're harder to order. Oh, <laughs> they right. run out. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, especially these past couple of years, I'm sure there have been right. a lot more orders. Exactly, exactly. Um let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you what you enjoy most about being a cannabis user, what is it? I enjoy creating balance in my life it, mm -hmm. because I have, as I've gotten older, I found out that, you know, I have ADHD mm -hmm. um, and part of it is exacerbated by the fact that I have CPTSD from things that happened in my past and being a cancer survivor. Oh yeah. And, and honestly, Steve, I like to get high. Like I, yeah. I like to kick back at the end of the day. And, you know, before, before I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer in my late thirties, I, I, I liked cannabis. I like to use mm -hmm. it. I don't, I didn't use it as much as I do now. It wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't using it knowingly therapeutically mm -hmm. um, but I also had a large group of guy friends that I hung out with and so we would go out for drinks and I was able to keep up with the fellas and I liked drinking whiskey when I went through chemo it wasn't that I couldn't drink but you certainly don't feel like it right when I got my card and after chemo I found that what I was probably looking for when I was drinking alcohol, and it's not to say that I don't have a drink every now and then, I certainly mm -hmm. do, but I found that probably what I was doing was I was striving for homeostasis in many ways, especially because of my social anxiety and my need to mm -hmm. unwind because I have anxiety stuff. So I love using cannabis to create balance to give me euphoric effects and be able to kick back without feeling like crap the next day. And mm -hmm. as a woman in her late forties, my mm -hmm. mom always told me when I was in my twenties, wait till you get older and you start like retaining water weight after a night of drinking. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, that's what you were talking about. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I, I find that that's, that's really what I like about it. I like the fact that I can use something non-euphoric is a tool for myself to create balance and to be able to you know have conversations not that I can't talk without it but there are times where I'm a little more overstimulated than others it helps me be able to you know dig deeper in my creative process and it's just a great way to kick back and I understand, you know I understand that that's not everybody's experience right um, and when I was going through my treatment it helped me so that I didn't have to take my anti-nausea medicine or my opioids. Mm -hmm. And both of those mm -hmm. things cause constipation, which will kill you when you're going through stage three colon cancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, cause my, the, the anti-nausea drugs especially would do that. And so that's, that's what I love about it. But more mm -hmm. than that, I love seeing 
how other people respond. And the fact mm -hmm. that when we are looking at symptom management or creating balance in our lives, mm -hmm. we have to be looking at, we, and, and there are researchers that are doing this and I'm applauding them, especially around uh, different th types of cancers. Mm -hmm. They're putting together protocols because it, uh. it's not just, let's put as much THC into our body and see what right. happens. Right. It's about, like you mentioned earlier, certain types of terpenes. Mm -hmm. the spectrum of terpenes, the spectrum of cannabinoids, and it's not a one-size-fits-all thing because we have mm -hmm. to take into consideration our body chemistries. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's what, yeah. and, and the thing that I love the most about cannabis mm -hmm. outside of using it is mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, people will say, oh, you know, Sarah, she's an expert in cannabis. Nobody is. Mm -hmm. I'm an eternal student, and I love the fact that I'm constantly learning. So I'm constantly stimulated because I'm one of these people that I'll get into something. And when I learn everything I have to learn about it, I'm, I'll get bored and I'll get distracted. And that's part of mm -hmm. my neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I get in, I get obsessed about something. I learn everything mm -hmm. about it. When Jeff and I moved in together, he was like, how many hobbies have you had? Oh, that's funny. That's <laughs> hilarious. That's really funny. Um, yeah, I'm reading a book, actually, uh, that'll be coming out later this year by a, a great guy named Pete Warmby, W-H-A-R-M-B-Y, on uh, the joy of autistic obsessions and hyper-focus. And, you know, for many decades, it was, oh, they're obsessed. You know, they, they're, they're all into trains. That's all they think about. And, you know, actually, that's how autistic people learn. They really get into stuff. And so um, his book is, uh, is I'm really enjoying it. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I think I got into cannabis early on uh, in part because of something that my teenage hero, the poet Allen Ginsberg, said. Um, he once said, uh, the message is widen the area of consciousness. And that was the spirit in which I started smoking cannabis, uh, even when I was very young. I was kind of a serious, serious little guy. And um, yeah, it was fun. But, you know, I there were also I would have gotten along well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there. I mean, there were also people who, you know, would, you know, smoke a lot and then drink a lot and then, you know, take angel dust or whatever, you know, <laughs> angel dust was very popular in my high school, unfortunately, in the seventies. In and I was like, Oh God, what is this? This is horrible. You know, but, but cannabis was very, um, uh, mind opening, uh, in that same way. I would hear more in music. I would appreciate more in poetry, uh, you know, uh, human touch, you know, became sort of an infinitely explorable landscape. Um, ice cream was delicious, <laughs> you know, um, and it's it seemed to get me out of my the prison of my own thoughts. Basically, it gave me a little reprieve from the prison of my own thoughts. And, um, you know, I've been exploring that ever since. I can't I can't honestly say that cannabis is as uh revolutionary and experience every time now uh, as it was when i was in you know eighth grade or whatever um but it's just 
it's become a part of the way that I like to inhabit my mind at times, you know, not while I'm on stage giving a talk, not now while I'm doing a podcast, not when I'm writing my book generally, unless I'm editing for the most part. Um, But, you know, so in other words, I'm an adult. (laughs) You know, I don't drink all day or whatever. No, there is such Uh, thing as too much of a good thing. And that's another conversation that, you know, it doesn't make me the most popular person, but talking about Mm -hmm. harm reduction in our relationship. Oh, yeah, definitely. But that's a whole other rabbit hole. And I want to point out something that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned Ginsburg. Yes, I did. You've worked with him. You've been his assistant. I I did. I did. Um, So here's the deal. Um, I was uh, in 1976, I think. um, uh, Me and my first boyfriend, a guy named Ed Power, um, we were students at Oberlin College. And one day, sort of the, the whole pressure, the academic pressure of Oberlin got to us and we were like, oh, my God, we got to get out of here for a few days. So we hopped on a Greyhound bus and went to New York City. We got off the bus, saw a street corner uh, newspaper box, if anybody remembers what those were. They were kind of like Twitter, but, but you know, <laughs> made out of steel. Um, and so, we, you know, we pick up a village voice and it says Allen Ginsberg reading tonight at Queens College. Uh, well, I had read Alan's poems when I was in, you know, high school English or something, and I really liked them and I related to them because he was a, a gay man and he was he was also more of a hippie than, you know, a, a, a Castro clone, as us old queens used to say, <laughs> um, you know, um, Alan was in a sense, subversive, even within the gay culture that he helped inaugurate, really. You know, he did not fit the mold. Uh, He was more like my uncle at a deli than he was like Freddie Mercury or something (laughs) like that. So um, we went to see him at Queens College, and I had one of the great turning point experiences of my life. I can't explain it any other way, but when I saw Alan... He opened up the show by singing a song by William Blake with his young companion and guitar player, Stephen Taylor, singing with him in a beautiful angelic tenor voice. Stephen Taylor was about my age. Alan was in his mid fifties. I had never seen a middle-aged man who seemed so fully present and fully engaged and fully in his body. Like compared to Alan, Many middle-aged men that I knew just in life seemed asleep or like, you know, like Republicans seem to me now, like just sort of (laughs) blathering, you know, nonsense that they skimmed off the television. Mm -hmm. Alan was speaking from his heart, from his sentience, from his awareness in the present moment, aware of everything that was happening around him. And I said to myself, whatever that guy is doing next summer, I'll be the guy who helps him out. Like if he needs somebody to go out and buy cat litter, I'll be that guy. If he needs somebody to go to the grocery store, I'll be that guy. It was all naive, of course, you know, like, I, you know, I thought he lived in Newark for some reason. I thought I could like get an apartment across the street. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, you know, I was, I was a teenager. Um, but what happened was I found out that he was teaching at a place called Naropa Institute, now Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. And there were tons of fascinating people there. 
Zen masters, uh, Gregory Corso, William Burroughs, the author of Naked Lunch. Um, when I got the catalog, it seemed to be a transmission from a better universe, really. That sounds <laughs> you <know>? dreamy. <laughs> it was dreamy. It was dreamy. And so in order to become one of Alan's apprentices, you were supposed to write him a letter and include some and include some of your poetry so that he could decide if you know you were worthy of becoming one of his apprentices. So I sent him that letter, heard nothing, right? I heard nothing. Uh, but damn it, I was, you know, <laughs> I was gonna go. I was gonna see through this vow that I made, you know, sitting in front of him at Queens College. And um, uh, so I just, you know, sold everything I had, went to Boulder on the train, found Alan, uh, who was, by the way, not the lonely sweetheart who shy who'd written those poems about strange new cottage in Berkeley and stuff. But he was a rock star, then, you know. <laughs> and so he was surrounded by supplicants and hangers on, and you know. So uh, I waited for them all to leave at Naropa registration, and I went up to him and I said, uh, "Hi, Alan. I'm Steve Silberman." And he said, "Oh, you wrote me that very nice letter." So that was good. Yeah, <laughs> that was awful. He'd actually sorry. gotten the letter, right? Yeah. So um, uh, he said, well, I haven't decided who my apprentices will be yet, but where are you staying? And I said, well, I'm staying at the sorority house, actually, <laughs> up on the hill. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I'll let you know. And by the time I got back to the sorority house, there was a note on my door. Mr. Ginsburg would like to offer you an apprenticeship. Oh, so, that had to be the best. It was amazing. And, you know, in a way, my whole adult life began at that moment. And, uh, you know, I went over to Alan's apartment immediately. Um, the first summer was actually a little bit rough on me because I was kind of this naive, you know, teenager. And I thought, oh, isn't he just this endlessly sensitive guy? You know, he was actually a huge egotist. And, you know, um, I mean, I ended up loving him tremendously. Just one facet of his personality, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, you know, he was a big, you know, I'm sure Bob Dylan has issues too, you know? So, uh, you know, it's rough to be famous, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, put I- Put yourself I, out there. Yeah, you got to put yourself out there. I even had a tiny, you know, in my minor way, I even had a tiny taste of that when uh, my book, Neurotrimps, uh, won this big uh, nonfiction award, the big nonfiction award in Britain. And so I went over there and they actually read in Britain. And uh, so I went over there and there were like people waiting like an hour and a half to get my autograph and a book. And, uh, you know, these like autistic teenage girls who were so sweet would come up to me and say, can I have a selfie? And they would practically weep, you know? And I was very, very touched by that. But it was also like, <clears throat> wow. This could go to your head after a while, you know. And your award was a really big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. Um, and you helped people feel seen, which is huge. Yes, yes. I mean, that's really what I hope to do most of all. Um, but yeah, so I so later on, I understood more of what Alan was dealing with. But uh, I'll tell you a, a funny story about Alan and cannabis. Um, so 10 years after that first summer, he invited me to become his teaching assistant at Naropa. So, of course, I immediately quit my job in San Francisco, <laughs> went to Naropa, um, and uh, 
So one night, um, me and, you know, I became friends with Alan's like inner circle, basically. They were all cool guys. Like um, Alan had very good taste in friends, uh, unless they were old beatniks in a way. (laughs) 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 But anyway, but his younger, his students were excellent. They were just wonderful guys. And so one night, um, I'm just sitting around Alan's apartment. Alan wasn't even there. He was probably giving a reading. Um, and we got high. And then Alan comes home unexpectedly, right? And he says, I smell grass. And I thought, oh, God, you know, we've done a faux pas here. You know, we're getting high in Alan's apartment, you know? And I said, yes, Alan, we were just getting high. And he said, you got any more? And I said, yes, we do. So we got Alan high and we ended up, it turned out to be like one of the greatest nights of my life because Alan, for one thing, Alan really wanted a back rub, which I understand because the back rubs feel really good when you're high. And so this amazing uh, dancer, beautiful woman dancer with a shaven head gave him this excellent back rub, which put him in a really good mood. And uh, and then we all ended up singing like ancient British ballads and poems, <laughs> reciting poems. And so it was a room full of stone poets with Allen Ginsberg, you know, having a blast. And it went, I believe it went till dawn, actually. Um, but so that was definitely one of the greatest nights of my life. And it probably wouldn't have happened without cannabis, actually. That sounds stony and magical. Yes, it was completely magical. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I um, know before we got on to record, I was telling you that mm. uh, my friend Michael Aldridge was also an assistant of his back in the early, early 70s. Oh, cool. And um, and actually. Ginsburg had a lot to do with some of the movement around cannabis and policy. Big time. And if you'll notice the most famous image of Alan from that period is him standing with a sign that says pot is fun uh, at, at one of the, what was it called? He, st- he launched an organization. Uh, I-, I wish I had the memory if I used to, but um, anyway, he, he, so he did this demonstration. So it wasn't like uh, I loved that sign because it was just a basic true thing, mm-hmm. you know? And what we're all dying from the lack of right now is truth yeah. in the public sphere. We're literally suffering from a truth deficit because the previous president and his criminal co-conspirators who should all be in jail, they just lied so much. And Fox News hosts lie so much. And it's literally breaking our brains um, to have so much lying going on. Yeah. And so Alan has always been, you know, he used to say candor ends paranoia, uh, i.e. telling the truth, you know, uh, about being gay, about getting high, about that Vietnam is a horrible slaughterhouse. You know, he was really into the redemptive and transformative power of telling the truth, which was why he was one of the first gay men to come out. Not the first, but one of the first uh, gay men to come out in public in his poem, Howell. And, um, you know, the, the, the killer line in Howell that was sort of, 
you know, made it become very censored and it, uh, it would certainly be removed from high schools now under, um, you know, the current hysteria about uh, book banning and trans kids. Um, the line was who let themselves be fucked in the ass by saintly motorcyclists and screamed with joy. Joy is the operative word there. Not like, oh, my God, it's a horrible scenario. Joy, you know. And so what he's, you know, when he was doing his demonstrations in favor of marijuana legalization, you know, he marched with a sign that said pot is fun. Yes, <laughs> you know, that's true. Yeah. yeah. A lot yeah. of people would agree with him. And yeah. I, I think when we are talking about cannabis and cannabis policy, one of the things that well, and, and I think this is with a lot of things in life, people either want <clears throat> to categorize something as one thing mm -hmm. or another. Right. Uh, cannabis is either that it's great mm -hmm. or it's the devil's lettuce. Using right. a very outdated For term. sure. For sure. But part of my work as an educator is to get people to understand that there are subtleties. Like when we, Absolutely. Like the conversation that we were we started out with when we were talking about, you know, the management of common symptoms that people may be you know, dealing with if they're autistic. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, speaking to the neurodiversity point, I think that as we as a society learn that some of the most valuable insights into our future and our direction as a society can come from people who have been diagnosed with these various conditions, you know, that were always treated as impairments or Disability or disability is okay. It's it's a good word to use, but um, uh, that basically we need to learn from different forms of consciousness in the same way. Uh, so cannabis consciousness, psychedelic uh, consciousness. I you know I something that Alan changed his mind about uh, over the decades, as did I actually, is that. Um, you know, when Alan was young, he would he he gave a famous speech in front of Congress, I think, once when he said, you know, everyone who hears this should take the chemical LSD at least once. Well, he revised that later because he saw that for people with the genetic uh, tendency to schizophrenia, even one psychedelic experience can be very uh, destabilizing. Right. And I, I've certainly seen that too among my friends with genetic tendency to for schizophrenia. So I never, so people say to me, so do you like psychedelics? You know, you were a deadhead. You saw the grateful dead, you know, hundreds of times and took psychedelics. Do you like them? You know, yeah, sure. But they can be really dangerous for people with uh, the genetic tendency for schizophrenia. Right. What's right for one person isn't across the right. right for everyone. And I think when we are looking at, you know, ways to be able to help people create balance and relief in their lives, we really do need to have the conversation about, you know, I, I, people say, oh, there always needs to be more research. Well, yes. And, you know, it, what it needs to be is around the protocols for for individuals. We need to have more individualized approaches for people when they're looking to have relief and using alternative therapies. Yeah, it's not a one size fits all thing. You know, some, but if it doesn't work for you, it's like I always tell people in my classes, even though we create our own endogenous cannabinoids, not all of us tolerate phytocannabinoids. And that's okay. It doesn't yeah. make cannabis bad, mm -hmm. but perhaps it's not for you. And you're okay doing that too, because it just shows 
how incredibly different you are from everybody else. The uniqueness is something to celebrate and to figure out what will work well for them. And I know we're getting to the end of our time, but you had posted a really great post on tips on Twitter. And I was wondering. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. So what it is, is um, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of our talk today, um, uh, Autism Awareness Month. For many autistic people and their allies, they prefer to call it Autism Acceptance Month, because what is awareness? You know, you get like awareness can be good or bad, really, but acceptance is good, you know. So uh, I wrote a brief list of 10 tips for folks who want to be good allies during Autism Acceptance Month, which is April. One, most autistic people prefer to be called autistic rather than people with autism. Two, listen to autistic people. Three, avoid demeaning or inaccurate terms like high functioning and low functioning. Four, read great books by autistic authors like We're Not Broken, Diary of a Young Naturalist, 10 Steps to Nanette, Keep Clear, and Sincerely, Your Autistic Child. Five, if you book autistic speakers for events, Pay them what you'd pay non-autistic speakers. Six, support autistic-led organizations like the Autism Self-Advocacy Network and the Autism Women's Network rather than organizations like Autism Speaks. Seven, understand that the spectrum is not linear, running from mild to severe. Eight, maximize every person's chances to communicate with AAC, which is uh, augmentative and alternative communication like iPads and software. Nine, don't try to empathize by saying, we're all a little on the spectrum, aren't we? Which diminishes autistic people's challenges. 10, don't say I'm sorry when an autistic person gets a diagnosis, which can give them understanding and access to their own community. So those were my tips for uh, for this month, for people who want to be good allies to autistic people. Thank you so much for that. We we have to have more conversations. I think that people don't know how to respond, and it creates awkwardness <clears throat> and avoidance. And yes, there's less compassion for, you know, what so many people are going through, not necessarily like you said because of being autistic, but because of all of the things that they come up against in the world around them, around acceptance and labels and, and perhaps, you know, people questioning what a person can and cannot do without letting the person speak for themselves. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's really been a privilege to be here. It's a pleasure having you, Steve. And if somebody wants to follow you on social media and see what you're doing, I know you're really active on Twitter, um, but what are the best ways to be able to... Yeah, follow me uh, on Twitter, at Steve Silberman, that's S-T-E-V-E-S-I-L-B as in boy, E-R-M-A-N. 
that's really the best way to to sort of catch up with what I'm doing. It's sort of a day to day, you know. It, it's a graph of my mind moving, as one of the beat poets said. <laughs> um, so yeah, Twitter is good. Uh, I have a web page as well, stevesilverman.com. It's not been so active lately because, or lately being the last few years, because I'm working on a next book, uh, which is going to be called The Taste of Salt which is about cystic fibrosis, oh, wow. uh, which is a very different condition than autism. Yeah. Uh, and But has as many um, interesting social aspects as autism. Um, so thank you. And thanks to your listeners for tuning in. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And for all of you listening out there, remember Planted is twice a month now. And you can listen to it wherever you listen to any of your favorite podcasts. Amazon, Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and Pandora. And on Instagram, we are Planted with Sarah. We are Planted with Sarah on Twitter. And we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook. Our website is www.plantedwithsarah.com. And of course, you can always listen to us on our parent network, straight out of Chicago, Radio Misfits Network. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation. And until we meet again, it's a crazy world out there. Be good to each other. Stay safe and stay curious. Until next time, Sarah Pyan signing off. <laughs> <laughs>